Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. evening we're going to be in 2 Kings 8. And the last time we, the title was uh, God's Timing, and we looked at the siege of Samaria, uh, which caused a famine, and in God's timing, how he broke that siege and gave the people the opportunity to break through the famine as well. And today, the uh, sermon's title is Sin's Consequences, and what we saw with Israel is after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two, the southern kingdom of Judah, which had two tribes, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which had ten. And Israel, the northern kingdom, misbehaved a lot. That's putting it nicely. And the southern kingdom pretty much was mostly faithful, but there were times that there were kings that were wicked as well. And it just wasn't a good day in the kingdom when the north and south, both of them had wicked leaders. Um... Where we are tonight is one of those instances. And, you know, we see God remove his protective hand. Um, so I, I, we brought you out tonight to, uh, it's kind of a little bit depressing, I've got to be honest with you, <laughs> because it's just a dismal time in the history of God's people. But the good news is that, you know, a lot of churches and ministries don't preach all of the Bible. They only want to jazz you up with their favorite parts and sometimes used as a form of manipulation. But, you know, for really students of the Word, the Bible itself says that we should understand the whole counsel of God's Word. It makes us better people, it matures us, it grows us. So when, even when we look at the difficult things in the Scripture, we, we can grow and mature through that. You know, as I was going through this, and we're going to take this in five parts, I, I thought about our country. And I know it's almost cliche to say this, you know, God removing His protective hand, but... I'll get to it any particular day that you open up the news. The crimes are becoming more decadent. What people are doing to each other and, and children and stuff, is, it's horrendous. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll make, try to make some analogies uh, there too. So jumping in in verse 1, it says, Then Elisha, this is the prophet, spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, the Shunammite woman, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. It's a long time to have a famine. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, he was Elisha's servant, saying, tell me please all the great things Elisha has done. Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. 
So one out of five, the first part is Elisha's ministry with the Shunammite woman. And we see in chapter four, when we covered it, how you could say that she, it appears that she was barren. Uh, Elisha prays to God and, you know, she, has, she conceives a son. Uh, and it was, it was a miracle. And then the son later had an illness and died. And then Elisha, um, through the power of God, brought him back to life. So this is the background. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you remember that. Now, the Lord called for a famine in this particular time for seven years. Why? Because of the grievous sin and behavior of the Israelites. Uh, what's interesting is that the famine didn't spread to the Philistine area. It, something's wrong. It's like everything's backwards. right? Israel was the blessed land, and they were God's people. But it's really tragic when believers have worse sin and worse behavior than the unsaved. And i got to tell you, you see some weird things today in the Christian culture. You see some weird behavior. You see some weird doctrine, and they say, you know, God told me. Um, you know, so listen, nothing's changed over thousands of years. First Peter 4.17 says that judgment starts with God's house. God allowed this famine to continue for seven years, but some of the surrounding territories did not have the famine. Second Chronicles 7.14, which we cover a lot, was always an option. You know, starting with the leadership, humbling themselves, and having the people humble themselves and pray and repent, and God restoring the land. This was a, a theme back then that everybody knew. They knew this was there. But some just stubbornly refused to do it. So the Shunammite, let's go back to this woman now, she does a lot for Elisha in his travels. Uh, she sets up a room and she talks to her husband, and whenever he's traveling back and forth, he always had a place to stay. And she's rewarded for that. Now, in Matthew 10, Jesus speaks all the way into the New Testament about the prophet's reward, about those that support the things of God and the blessings that they would receive. And she was blessed with being warned of the famine to go somewhere for a time and then come back when the famine disappears instead of suffering through it. So the woman comes back to her home and her land and she finds that there's people there, <laughs> and it's our house. And maybe there was a lot of people, and they said, and it's our house now. Today we would call them squatters. You know, they need to be evicted. But imagine you coming, going on vacation, coming back to your home, and there's like 20 people. They're in your pool. They're, <laughs> they're hanging out. They're cooking in your kitchen. And, you know, this is what this poor woman had to deal with. So now we, if this was a movie, we would stop there and pan to the royal court. Because she eventually goes to petition the king and saying, I don't know what to do, king. I, I meet, this is my house, you know. And we'll get to that. So in verse 4, in the king's court, Gehazi, remember him, right? He was Elisha's servant for a long time. Um, you know, the king, I, I don't know if he summons uh, Gehazi, and they're having a discussion. And the king's, you know, tell me about Elisha's miracle. Uh, miracles and and he does and he, he speaks about this woman and how the son is miraculously was born and how he died and Elisha brought him back um, but here's the weird thing is a lot of these kings were they were so godless but the miracles of God piqued their curiosity now some of them did repent and some of them didn't and that's a weird thing to me he knows he's not right with the Lord and uh, he's talking to the prophet's servant and he wants to hear all these great stories about miracles, but he could change the plight of his people by repenting. 
sort of like King Josiah did uh, later on in Judah. And I named my son after him. I was so taken by this king after reading about him. But he did. He, he repented himself and he made the whole nation repent and God stayed punishment. He, he staved it off because of Josiah's reforms. Pretty amazing. So basically, Gehazi, right? The last thing we see is it, he does some really bad stuff and he ends up with leprosy. And um, So you might ask yourself, well, is, is he still leprous? Now remember, 2 Kings like some of the historical books, were not necessarily in chronological order. Now, in Western culture, that's how we do things, but it not, wasn't always the way they, they did things. And if you're looking for that, when we go through Revelation, and we have gone through Revelation, if you're looking for chronological order, you're going to get confused and frustrated because sometimes John gives a general overview and then he, he, the camera zooms in and you get a big picture of, of something that he just covered previously. That's in Genesis as well, by the way. You hear about creation, and then God gives the specifics about a certain day and who was created and what they did. So it is, it's an aptitude that you develop for the Scripture. I personally think that, that this, what we're, what we're reading was pre-Gehazi getting leprosy. Some people have speculations, and I don't know if they're true, that Gehazi repented and he was healed, but that's not indicated in the Scripture. So there's a lot of different theories. I personally believe that this happened prior to the incident where he received the leprosy. But you, you should see a parallel. When we study the Bible, we start to see, you know, it, it, something goes off like a flag in your mind. Uh, you know, something, light bulb goes off. Doesn't it remind you of, of Herod? Remember King Herod? He was a, a very worldly man, did some evil, but he had some times where he would, so weird, he had John the Baptist imprisoned, and then he would come to John's cell and probably when nobody else was around, and asked John about things, about God, and, and he would listen to John. And then what does he do? He kills him afterwards, you know. So some in the world have a, a, an interest for the things of God, but they don't take the, the full step of committing themselves. So you can see a lot of parallels, and, and we see it today as well. So as this is going on, again, if this was our movie, you see where the woman left off with the, the squatters, and you see the royal court where Gehazi and the king are talking, and now all of a sudden, as they're talking, she ends up making this track, and she ends up at the palace at the same time that Gehazi and the king are there. And, you know, in essence, what I just read, Elisha goes, oh, yeah, that, that's her, you know, saying, wow, what a coincidence, you know. God had favor upon her. And he tells the king, and this is her, and this is her son. It was a mir miracle twice. And... Uh, and the king is so taken by it that he sends an officer with the woman to get her house and her belongings back. Pretty interesting. Sometimes you've got to read it a few times to pick up and, and put all the pieces together. But going back to the title, this was a dark time spiritually in Israel's history, and God had to deal with that sin. We continue on, verse 7. Then Elisha went to Damascus, which is in Syria. Damascus is still in Syria. <laughs> it's a very old nation. And Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him. Of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said, Go. Say to him, you shall certainly recover. 
Now he, and he, he pans to, to Haziel, and he finishes his sentence, but not to tell the king. He goes, however, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And I'll, I'll parse that. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open the, wo- the women with child. So Haziel said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, well, what did Elisha say to you? And he said, he told me that you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died and Hazel reigned in his place. The Bible doesn't candy coat anything, doesn't sugarcoat it. This is stuff that we need to know. There's treachery in here, there's human nature, there's you know, power and authority corrupting people. And so the second part out of five is Elisha's ministry with Syria or the king of Syria. So it starts off. Now, Elisha is a pretty sturdy guy. You know, he's been through a lot. Uh, he's, had, he's had people not like him, maybe try to kill him, uh, and he still plugs along. He still, y- you know, that, that's, what, that's a great lesson for us as believers. God's called us to do something. You, you just keep doing it. You know, and what a great example he was. But he also had a, a tender heart, you know, um, and I'll get to that. He, he sees things maybe probably in a vision or in his mind that God shows him, and he weeps because he sees the suffering from this one man that he's going to inflict on, on the people. But Elisha has a powerful reputation even among pagan countries. Now, Elisha had mixed reactions with the Syrian forces. Sometimes he thwarted their war plans, and others he showed mercy to them. So it was bold and brave for him to even go to Syria. Okay? It, you know, the Israelites were practicing awful things and being ungodly, but the Syrians were, were even worse. And many times they were Israel's enemy. I've got to tell you, uh, ministries today and, and ministers and clergy can learn from Elisha. You know, he, today there's this Christian culture that irritates me, <laughs> some of it anyway, and I'm not afraid to say from the pulpit, a lot of pastors shy away from it, but they're doing things that are weird, you know? You've you got these guys, and, and I've mentioned some names from the pulpit, and I've given facts that try to pander to the culture. So to reach the culture, they try to act like the culture. Well, a great page out of the Bible from Elisha, something to, someone to look at and to admire. Elisha didn't pander to the culture. He was always that light that shined in the darkness. And actually, if you're on our church Facebook page, and if you're not, you can get on it. Um, just you know, send a request. But one of the people in our fellowship, Dan, uh, put an article, and it was about how we get used to the darkness, meaning the spiritual darkness. It's a great, phenomenal article. If you have four minutes to read it and you go on the church website um, and, and you have that and you have ministries that feel instead of being a light, we're going to do things different. You know, we got to be relevant. We got to be cool to the culture. That wasn't Elisha and that certainly wasn't Jesus. Again, something to take note of. What we find here is that the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is going to die. Now, Ben-Hadad's a worldly man. But just like the king of Israel, he was interested in some of the things of God, especially now that he had this illness. So when you're on your deathbed, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. He's like, oh, somebody go get, go get Elisha for me. 
And he does worldly things. He, he sends Hazel out there and he brings camels and goods and, you know, Elisha can't be bribed. He's turned down gifts before, it doesn't say, but he probably turned down, turned down these gifts as well. And again, a worldly person thinks that their money is going to buy them influence in the kingdom or with clergy or whatever, and God help clergy who allow that to happen. But I don't believe he took the gifts. In verse 10, he <laughs> there's this discussion, and, and I call it unfolding revelation. I believe that Elisha, and, and this happens in our lives too. Elisha goes to his Haziel, and they have a conversation. Then Elisha stares at him, and he stares at him, and then he turns away, and then he starts weeping. I believe that Elisha didn't know everything right up front, but over time, God was starting to reveal things to him. And again, if it was a movie, you could see Elisha. And if, if, if you've ever seen this in a movie, I'd like, I'd like to watch it to see an artist's uh, rendering of it. But you could almost see Elisha, he's staring at Haziel, and he's, he's, kind of, he's seeing in his mind the, the war and the burning of the villages, and, and, and he just he pulls his, his gaze away, and he starts to weep. Uh, very powerful. And Haziel, he doesn't even know what the heck is going on, and it's about him. In verse 11, Elisha figures out, and he knows it's revealed to him that Haziel's going to be the next king. And Elisha knows more about Haziel, about his soul, than Haziel knows about his soul. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing sometimes how we don't know ourselves? And, and, and if we're just, if we're not prideful and we're open to correction, that somebody close to us may reveal something about us that we might not necessarily see in ourselves. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 speaks about the wickedness of our own hearts. Who can know it? I don't know the wickedness of my own heart. So I'm certainly, in, and I just, I see this in ministry and even in my life, I try not to put myself in situations where I'm going to go now testing myself. Because the Bible says I have a wicked heart too. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to heaven. But we still sin. So Hazel, he even protests. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't see this about himself. But Elisha does. And I've got to tell you, there's been times that I've, I've had, I'm going to say an Elisha moment, where even in the church, God has shown me things about some people. And it doesn't happen that often. And uh, sometimes I'll try to sound the alarm or warn others and, you know, listen, there was people who left here and one got involved in a serious robbery, and a violent robbery. Another one um, was arrested for child pornography. And, and there's a lot of stuff here, you know. And I'll say something and I'll maybe come off as judgmental. No, it's not judgmental, it's discernment, you know. And God has protected this church is all I can say. But some crazy things have happened and some crazy people with issues have passed through the doors and God's given the leaders discernment on certain things. Um, no, not her. She's so sweet. Oh, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> and then you, you find out that you're right. You don't want to be right, but it's, it's like an Elisha moment. Elisha didn't want this to be true, but God revealed it to him. So what does Haziel do? He protests. He doesn't say, well, you know what? You are the man of God, and, and my own king summoned you all the way over here, and you obviously know a lot because you're just telling me what's going on with my king. I trust you too. He doesn't do that. He protests. He fights with him. He argues with him. Uh, he doesn't repent. 
And this power and authority, when Haziel gets it, he becomes maddened with it. He becomes completely corrupted by it. Power and authority are corrupting influences. We've seen it in history. Um, we've seen it even in small ways. Sometimes if you, you work at a place and your coworker gets promoted and then promoted again and they become a different person. You know what I'm saying? People do weird things and they don't know themselves. It's right here in the scripture. Verse 15, Ben-Hadad does recover from his illness, but Haziel smothers him. He gets this idea to wet a blanket and put it over his face. And Listen, I don't know what, what Ben-Hadad had, but you, you know like when you go through a really bad sickness like the flu, and you're better. You wake up the next morning, you could feel that it left you, the fever and such, but you're weak. So God was right. Oh, he's always right. He tells Elisha. Elisha says, yes, Ben-Hadad does recover, but he's going to die anyway, not knowing initially what that meant, but here we find out that Haziel decides, I'm going to kill him, and nobody will know. And this was a common way to murder those that were weak, by smothering them. Treachery. <laughs> There's a lot of treachery. You know, um, it, It's hard to understand the, the, the depths of the evil that one person can do. Now, the way I look at this is, there was so much evil going on that God just removed his protective hand. Um, you might say, well, then why didn't Elisha just kill him? Because God didn't tell Elisha to kill him, you know? Remember, God warned his people about consequences many times. Also, his people were really in that one place geographically. They were right, right in the middle, and their light had to shine spiritually. If they completely imploded and everyone was decadent, there would be no light in the world back then. Of course, the Jesus Christ comes later. So the children of Israel needed a wake-up call. And I, I think, too, that in a lot of these, these ways, you, you know, when God is blessing, he also bless, blesses by restraining. Again, using King Josiah. He says to King Josiah, judgment's coming from the Babylonians, but because of your reforms, I'm, gonna, I'm holding it off. They're, they're amassing armies. They're becoming a world power, but I'm going to put you guys in a protective bubble. Okay, that's my, that's my um, what, do we, what do we call that, interpretation of the conversation. Um, but he does. He puts the Judahites in this protective bubble for a while, so to speak, and then after he, he dies, unfortunately, his kids don't follow in his footsteps. They're treacherous too, and, and the Babylonians come. Okay, verse 16. It says, now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. Now, these names had, you know, when we look at Hebrew, and, and even sometimes, you know, it's foreign to us, literally, like people come over and they have Arabic names. They have like these meanings, okay? Um, these Hebrew names, Yah, or, you know, was in the middle of it, God blesses, God this, you know, so what happens is, it's a little confusing for us, but for them it wasn't confusing. So Joram was the king in the northern king, uh, kingdom, and Jehoram was the king in the southern kingdom. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah, the southern kingdom, for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zair, not Zaire, Zair, 
and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots, but his people fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So three out of five, the reign of Jehoram of Judah. Now Jehoram is Jehoshaphat's son. <laughs> Some of you are like, what with these names? But if you know something about the Bible, you know that Jehoshaphat was a pretty good guy for the most part. He had major flaws, but the Bible refers to him that he, he was good, okay? But his son, Jehoram, is married to Athaliah, the, you know, the daughter of the evil Ahab. Now, Second Chronicles 21, which I'm not going to read, is a parallel scripture, and it gives more insight. I'll just give you these quick facts, and then we'll move on. Uh, Jehoram kills his younger brothers and the princes. You know, he ascends to the throne. He's the oldest, and his father gives some towns and cities to the younger brothers and some money and stuff, and Jehoram's paranoid, and he kill, you know, this, is, this was not uncommon. He kills all of his brothers. They, were, they posed a threat to him, so he thought in his mind. Also, the Arabians and Philistines attacked Judah, the southern kingdom at this time, the palace. They looted the royal court and took some of Jehoram's sons and his wives back to their own countries. Three, and we don't see this in Kings, but in Chronicles it tells us that Jehoram died of a dreadful and painful intestinal disease which appears to have protruded from him or ruptured. I, I like medicine, so I, I'm thinking... You know, maybe it was a really bad herniation that ruptured and got infected and then started protruding his belly. Uh, sorry if you just ate, but, um, you know, I like to, it, it's just interesting to me. Suffice it to say that he dies and he doesn't die in a good way. And it doesn't seem like he repented either. But sadly, Jehoshaphat, again, was a good man. This was his father, but he had some flaws. And his flaws were his alliances and his compromise. When a husband and wife are married for decades and they, they want to make decisions, they compromise. That's a good compromise. A bad compromise is when somebody who's good compromises with somebody who's evil, therefore bringing themselves down and making the situation worse. And unfortunately, Jehoshaphat did that. And it's sad because people do stupid things. Uh, they hang with bad people. They don't break ties that they need to. Let me tell you something. When God had called me to be a pastor, there were some ties that he forced me to break. <laughs> and I didn't want to break them. I didn't do it willingly. And I learned some hard lessons. But you know what? It's a privilege to serve God. It's a privilege to be a pastor. And there was some that, that I was compromising with, and I shouldn't have. So God is always right, and I love that about him. I can never go wrong by following him, <laughs> whether he's, I'm doing it voluntarily or he's dragging me. Either way, it's all good because I want to follow him. Um, well, Jehoshaphat was too cozy with the wicked king of Ahab, or the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, of the northern uh, kingdoms, and I think Jehoshaphat felt obligated to help, right? And this led to his son Jehoram marrying Ahab's daughter Athaliah. And it's almost, and this is what they did back then, and it doesn't mean it was right, but you would intermarry with different kingdoms to cause treaties, because if your relatives were over there, then how could you wage war on them? You know, your niece is there, or your daughter, or whoever. 
Um, but we do things in the world and God says, it's not right. And people still do things in the world that they shouldn't do. So none of this should have happened. He should definitely, he shouldn't have married Athalia. And you know what? There's a great uh, parallel, too, to Christians today that hang around the, the wrong people because they're either needy or they're lonely or they're looking for a good laugh. And I've got to admit, all throughout you know, grade school and high school and college and you know, at growing up, some of the, the bad kids were the most entertaining. They were funny, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but God doesn't get the joke. You know, when we're Christians, it just, the, the deal is this. If you can be friends with those that are, ungodly and every time you're in their presence so for the most part you're bringing them up because you're trying to bring them to the cross that's a good thing but if every time you're in their presence or the majority of the time they bring you to their evil and they tempt you and you take the bait it's probably time to cut the cord and sometimes as new believers you know we want to save all of our friends but for a time there needs to be a little bit of a separation and I found that, and then I found that later on, I was strong enough where they weren't going to get me to in, be engaged in their things, but I was having more of a positive influence on them. You know, we know. We kid ourselves, but we know the truth. We know who we should be hanging around with and who we shouldn't be. We know who we're making a positive effect on and who we're not. Jehoshaphat didn't make a positive effect on any of these people, and he shouldn't have been in alliance with them. So continuing on, Verse 19, God said specifically that he would not destroy Judah's dynasty, the southern kingdom. Why? Because the Messiah was going to come through the southern kingdom, right? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah couldn't be destroyed. However, well, that, that's in 2 Samuel 7, if you're looking for that scripture reference. However, God did punish evil doing. You know, God doesn't play favorites. So the Babylonians uh, eventually do invade this southern kingdom, again, after Josiah's kingship is over. Uh, we also see that he punishes King Jehoram and others who practice evil. God, listen, it's going to get you one way or the other. Um, evil is going to be judged. It's either going to be judged here or it's going to be judged in death, in the judgment, or both. You know, Verse 22, Judah loses its authority over its surrounding nations. Okay, We see that Edom and Libna... Um, they revolt, and they become autonomous. And they're like, we don't need you, Judah. Uh, and, and the king decides, oh, I'll show you. I'll bring my troops, and they end up surrounding him, and a lot of his men desert. There you go. God's not protecting you anymore. Can I tell you something? I was a, a, a heathen for 25 years. I became a Christian. Um, it's almost 25 years, 49. But I would never go back to that life. And, and I think to myself, man, I was a a heart attack away from not being in a good place. And, or, or you know, I, I just think to myself, I wouldn't want to live every day without being in his graces, in his favor. Like, who would go back to that? Once you know the Lord and you've tasted of that good fruit, you know? So, so here's this guy, Jehoram. He knows the law. He knows he had some good people that came before him. And what does he do? He practices evil and he keeps losing. Everything he touches, he loses. So Edom and Libna revolt against him. The Philistines and Arabians come across the border and into his palace and raid him. Uh, they raid and they loot and they pillage and they kidnap. This guy doesn't get it. Uh, but we'll see in the next chapter that justice gets served. So you, you'll have to try to make it out next time because it's a little depressing. It's just all bad news. But we're going to see how God 
allows that to happen for a while, and then he just he starts to change things. And listen, we live in America. Our presidents, four, four, four years, eight-year terms, you know, whether we like them or not, they're not there forever. We, we get a change. Some of these kings were there for 50 years. You, you could live your whole life and never see another king. Um, there's countries today that the people are so oppressed that it's, it's when they hear that the king passes, it's a relief. The Bible alludes to that as well, a, a horrible king, how the people suffer under that. Um, it's something that we can't understand in this country. Uh, but there's going to be, these guys don't last forever, which is good. God gives the people relief. Verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law of the house of Ahab. King Ahab was a bad guy, and his wife was Jezebel. You know, Even the unsaved people today, oh, Jezebel, you're a Jezebel. Like They know what the name means. Uh, that's a bad legacy to have, by the way. I mean, seriously, how long are we on this earth? You know, you could enjoy worldly and ungodly pleasures for decades, and then for all eternity, your name's in, you know, in this case, his name's in the Bible, and it's always associated with evil. Where is he now? Well, he's not in a good place, I can tell you that. So the four out of five is the spiritual evaluation of Ahaziah of Judah, and we see, again, the horrible example that Ahab and Jezebel said for their kids. 28 and 29, last two verses. Now he went, Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And remember Haziel? He smothers Ben-Hadad, now he's the king, and he's reigning. Certainly not a, a guy you want to tick off because he was a heartless guy. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So five out of five, the battle against Syria. It doesn't go so well for Israel's kings, the north or the southern kingdom. Joram is wounded, and Joram and Ahaziah both go to Jezreel while Joram um, tries to nurse his wounds and get better. But I can tell you that justice is coming in chapter 9. I like justice, you know. Um, there's nothing wrong with liking justice. Certainly, I prefer justice happens to other people than to me. Of course, you know, that's how we see things. But uh, these people are really bad. I didn't kill anybody. Uh, so, so we're going to see that uh, in the next chapter, King Jehu uh, gets both of them. God culls them, so to speak, and brings them into one place. And then Jehu comes in and he executes God's justice. And now there's two kings that change. Uh, people get a little bit of a reprieve. Again, this, was, this, is, you know, this is not the glamorous part of Scripture, but we go through the entire portion of Scripture. Is there something that we can take away from this? Absolutely. Certainly, you, you and I wouldn't want to be like any of these guys. You know? uh, for thousands of years, they've been in a really bad place. It's not worth it. Uh, eternity is so big, and our lifespan is so small. I mean, really, the primary reason is to be in fellowship with God, but certainly, um, I, don't, I don't get it, you know. These people just, I, th I guess they thought they would live forever. 
Why is this so bothersome? Is because as people of God, we want to see justice. We want to see righteousness prevail. We know that at some point, Jesus is going to rule Jerusalem with a rod of iron, and he's going to rule righteously. And we look forward to that day because we never have to complain about politicians again once Jesus is ruling because everything he does will be perfect, you know? Uh, so that's one complaint that we'll never have again. However, you know, I, I look at what's going on there and we can get caught up in being desensitized to our culture and say, oh yeah, they were really bad. Well, pick up the news on any given day. You know, look at the strife, look at the hatred, look at the, there's literally tens of thousands, if not more laws throughout the states, federal government, et cetera, and every year more laws are added to the books because we, we have a lawless society and we just keep making more laws and we just keep prosecuting, we just keep doing all this stuff. You know, um, some of the things I see, and I actually was going to read some of the headlines. I, you know, I'm not... I'm not a shock jock. I'm, I'm just going to let you do the reading on your, on your own. Just pick up, go home, look up the news. And not only do you see crimes, murders, all kinds of things, but you see cruel, cruelty in doing it. You know, I, cruelty to animals. You know, I, I'm, I'm wavering right now in my mind. I'm not going to do it. But suffice it to say that our society is a mess, folks, and there's going to be consequences. And, you know, God will remove his protective hand. Why would he protect a nation? There really is a battle for the soul of the United States. You know, there's a lot of Christians praying. There's a lot of Christians that are involved in government. And then there's a lot of really sick people who want to take total control of our government uh, so that all the elites have the control and we're just their minions. Um, taking away our rights little by little, even free speech. See that on the college campuses? Make no mistake, there's a root of those organizations that are doing this. And the root is, is against God. You know, and I see even Christians on Facebook and stuff, they get caught up in these movements and some of these marches. And they don't know who's fueling these marches. And he, some Christians have tried to be a part of these marches, and if they were pro-life or they were pro-Christian, some of them were assaulted and kicked out of the march. But, uh, but I'm a woman too. Yeah, but you're not the right type of woman, or you're not the right type of student. I am a student of history. I love history. And, and I just have seen what these demonic people and groups have done in Russia, in China. There was a lot of Christians in China, a lot of missionaries. In Cuba, you know who the first people they come for? Is the Christians. I got news for you. These Marxist, countercultural, anti you know, order groups. There was one march where um, they were mocking Jesus, and this had nothing to do with Jesus, saying that Mary should have had an abortion. There's this is pro abortion uh, group. That's pretty sick. You know what I'm saying? You know, it, it gets really bad, folks. And I believe that we're we're headed for something that's not pretty soon i hope the lord comes back and takes us out of here but we may get a little taste of it before he does come back we need to be praying i'm going on and on here but i, I saw something about south africa south africa is plagued with crime and and there was this big prayer meeting with blacks and whites and all these people coming together thousands out in the open just to pray to repent 
And it, it, I, I got chills. That's an awesome thing. And I know there's a lot of Christians in this country that are praying, but this is happening all over. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in a lot of different countries. And folks, we got to be in the battle. And I'm not saying to take up literal arms, but I am saying to take up your spiritual sword. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be praying because there's some forces that are heavy, demonic, that want to that shut everything down in this country. Ask my wife. We pray together. On a regular basis, I pray for this country. I pray for revival. You know, for years I've been praying for this. We need to be praying, Christians. We need to be, we need to be doing it. We need to be, uh, you know, having that warfare. Well, the good news in all this is the next chapter is going to get better. Um, in addition to that, the Lord's going to come one day, and he's going to depose all these earthly rulers in this planet, and he's going to rule righteously, and we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, we pray for his will be to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.